This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm talking with Stephen Lawadi, who's the author of Mountain Biking Colorado's Front Range, a guide to the greatest off-road bicycle rides and mountain biking Colorado, an atlas of Colorado's greatest off-road bicycle rides. He lives in Fort Collins, Colorado, and has been documenting mountain bike trails since the year 2000. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. So I wanted to start out by asking you, how did you get started writing mountain bike guidebooks? It seems like a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, you know, it was, it was somewhat coincidental. I had uh, recently graduated from my graduate program and decided to start my freelance writing career. So I struggled with that, as many do. And my buddy, in fact, out of the blue, sent me a ad from Mountain Biking Action Magazine or Mountain Bike Action Magazine. And they were uh, a publisher, a startup publisher was calling for writers who were interested in mountain biking. So like I did countless times before, <laughs> I sent them my clips, told them what I was about and never heard from them. <laughs> so I figured, you know, that was basically the end of the road for my uh, mountain bike guidebook career. But they had called a year later uh, while I was basically living in Steamboat Springs as a ski bum and mountain bike bum. Mm -hmm. And they had found my application and my clips and were still interested. And basically that's how the ball started rolling. Cool. Did you have experience uh, like documenting trails in that way before? Or, or were you... Were you interested even before? Had you ridden a lot of trails already? Oh, yeah. You know, I was always a mountain biker since having come out here. Um, and I was always interested in maybe trying to, you know, marry my love of writing with my love of the outdoors. Uh, so I always had an interest in trying to go in that direction. And, and I would write, you know, outdoor adventure articles for local and national magazines and that sort of thing. Sometimes that included a trail or two, but n never anything of this length, let's say. So when this came around, I thought, you know, I was, I was ready for it. I was young, I was riding, and I, I knew the lay of the land with respect to, you know, where to go in mountain biking in Colorado. Yeah, that's really cool. Did you know going into this, you know, how big of a project it would be? What was your initial estimate of how long it would take to, you know, actually gather the info and write the book? And then how long did it actually end up taking? Oh, it took, it took a lot longer than I <laughs> anticipated. You know, it was published in 2000 originally, but uh, I signed the contract in 97. Oh, wow. So it took several years to amass the work and, and do all the driving and the writing and the writing. I mean, it was pretty much all inclusive when it came to doing the work. So driving solo and then crashing in a car or on a in a tent and then <laughs> having to ride the next day. I mean, all of those things took, took time and Colorado is a pretty big state to cover. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, it seems like there would be pretty, you know, serious financial costs to doing that as well. I mean, in the end, did you sort of break even or cover your costs or, or was that, did you, did, I guess my question is, did you have to risk that yourself? Was there like a flat rate you were going to get for the book 
or were they kind of covering the expenses for you? No, they weren't covering the expenses. They they gave me an initial advance, which is generally how it works, but you know, that doesn't cover the costs at all. Yeah. So I basically had to continue working like doing construction, bartending, landscaping, whatever it took to pay the bills wow. while at the same time, you know, doing these rides and, you know, doing the computer work and the <laughs> windshield wheel, windshield time. So it, it really was more a labor of love yeah. <laughs> than uh, a, a labor of profit. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I'm sure a lot of people probably don't consider that, you know, it definitely seems like, you know, a really great lifestyle. Um, but Clearly, there's a lot of work that goes into that, and you know, you're not guaranteed a, a big return in the end. Absolutely, and I, I understood that going in. Basically, I didn't. I wasn't surprised by the fact that I would be struggling to make this work, but I was motivated. I kind of, I kind of thought that this was my opportunity to do something what I what I had always hoped for. So it was an opportunity to, I guess, put a. Uh, an, another job well done in the in the in the bucket list, and, and you know I'm proud of the work that I've done and continue to do with it. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, did this open other doors for you? Was this your first book that was published? This was the first book published, yeah, and it, it did provide some other opportunities to uh, work on other books and kind of uh, edit other books. And there were some other opportunities that I turned down for uh, different reasons, but this one really just kind of was the cornerstone to my taking myself seriously, uh, but not too seriously at the same time. You know, I, I don't avow, avow myself to be any Ernest Hemingway or anything, but um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the written word and I appreciate a good time on a tra- in the trail. So to be able to do the both was, in my opinion, awesome. So, I mean, for that, for that, I'm grateful. Yeah, that's great. So you wrote the first edition of your book, Mountain Biking Colorado, in the year 2000. So it's 18 years later, and right now the third edition is being published. So how has the Colorado mountain bike scene changed over the last 18 years? Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. You know, trying to relate to some of the newer riders that I meet on the trail is, is difficult. When, when I started, you know, this was late 80s, early 90s. It was still relatively a fringe sport, you know, people beating on rigid steel bikes mm-hmm. uh, over rocks and that sort of thing. But nowadays, uh, the scene's definitely a lot more mainstream, a lot more legitimate and respected, I would say. I mean, mountain biking, at least in, in Colorado, is a marketing device for resorts and uh, other tourist destinations. It's generating a lot of revenue in those places. I just read an article the other day uh, where the uh, the Associated Press reported that Colorado Springs, some philanthropists down there pledged a million dollars toward building a mountain biking park oh, wow. uh, in Col- in Colorado Springs. So, I mean, it's it's big money, and and that's that get, that gets attention. So from the technologies that are being developed, you know, like NASA informed technologies. <laughs> yeah. And the expense of some of these bikes, it's gotten to be a, uh, a scene that's kind of grown up over the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Well, put that into some context for us, too. I mean, what, was, what bike were you riding when you wrote the first edition? I came out to Colorado with a Muddy Fox, which, uh, yeah, I think it was a British brand, and I don't even know if they exist. <laughs> but it was an old bike that I bought in Vermont from a buddy shop, and uh, I used that for several years. 
and then uh, got turned on to Specialized and went the stump jumper route and uh, hung with Specialized for a little while. And I'm, I'm currently riding a Yeti bike uh, uh, built in Colorado. Yeah. So was your Muddy Fox, so I assume that was, that was probably a hardtail back then. Oh, yeah. It was a hardtail and, uh, and uh, yeah, it was rigid all around. And it, it was rigid all around, you know. <laughs> It was chromoly, right? That was the that was like the the new thing back then. So, <laughs> but you know, I took that to Moab and other you know rocky destinations and beat that bike up as I did my body. But since then, I think a lot of the technologies have have allowed really nice bikes to be ridden a lot more comfortably. And the sport, the recreation, whatever you want to call it, has 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 grown in that sense and has invited people that are not just out to, not just out to, you know, massacre their bodies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how did your experience change? Do you, did you enjoy this round anymore on your, you know, super wonder bike compared to the muddy Fox that you were riding back in the late nineties? You know, that's an awesome question. You know, I don't know if it was just the bike or if it was my mentality. I mean, it's 20 some odd years has an effect. Yeah. <laughs> so while I enjoyed the adventure of the old school riding and doing it for the first time, mm -hmm. I think I was able to appreciate what I was still doing 20 years later at, I would think the same level, you know, of, uh, of skill and being able to suffer as much as I did, but the suffering on a sweet bike or, or a dialed in bike is a lot less taxing <laughs> when you're trying to recover from a ride, you know? Yeah. The trails have changed too. You know, back in the day, you would ride a trail that was at best a converted hiking trail right. uh, or, or at worst a, a game trail. Nowadays, with these purpose-built trails that are a lot more uh, sustainable and the design is, is a lot more thought out, uh, you're, you're riding trails that aren't as abusive as they once were. And they're, you know, sustainable and, and that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. So your book is titled or, you know, part of the subtitle is Greatest Off-Road Bicycle Rides in Colorado. So this time around, did you find many new trails that you would add to that list of the greatest off-road bike rides in Colorado? Yeah, I definitely kept some uh, ones that I thought were my favorites. And I definitely added some as I, you know, did my research and talked to friends and see uh, what was what was out there. You know, some of the newer rides that I really appreciated were uh, the Centennial Cone Park in near near Golden, Colorado, um, mm. down in uh, Ridgeway, kind of close to Uray and Telluride. Uh, the Ridgeway area trails are awesome. That's relatively new. Steamboat Springs is always a contender in having great trails, and they're creating um, a huge network up along the Buffalo Pass area, uh, one trail that comes to mind, Flash of Gold. Yeah. Uh, these, these are all great trails that are new and up and coming and built really well. But, you know, some of the classics still exist too. The Monarch Crest Trail down in Salida, I, I had to keep in there. Teocali Ridge in Crested Butte, I kept in there. The Colorado Trail that extends from Denver down to Durango over 500 miles, sections of that are phenomenal riding. So there's definitely some classics that remain and, and should remain. And at the same time, trying to introduce new trails to, uh, to an audience that would be willing to ride them. Yeah. Well, how, I mean, how have the classics aged over time compared to when you first rode them? Are, they, is there, are there any differences that you noticed? Yeah. 
you know, the, the Monarch Crest trail still will put a hurting on me. It's, it's, it's long <laughs> and it has sections that are, um, a little bit more abusive. Uh, the Teal Cali Ridge trail that I mentioned, uh, that was closed for several years, uh, for needed, much needed repairs. So there were some repairs that were included that made the, I guess the backside, the descent a lot more rideable. So, these classic trails run the risk of not being sustainable, but thanks to the land stewards that are out there, the advocacy groups that are out there, huge thanks to all the volunteers that support and build and maintain these trails, these classics still exist. They're still around. I was recently in um, Crested Butte, well, last, last summer, and the famed iconic trail or one of them down there is the 401 trail. Mm -hmm. And the people in the bike shops, and for good reason, they're very proud and protective of these trails. So we had gotten a decent amount of snow and they made sure that every person that came into that bike shop knew that the trail wasn't open yet. Huh. So there's a vested interest in keeping these trails in good repair and good shape. Yeah. Well, what about the flip side? Are there any trails that you decided to take out of the book because they just aren't what they used to be? Yes, there were some trails that I decided to remove because for whatever reason, I thought that they weren't by today's standards up to snuff. And that there were also some trails that uh, I maybe wanted to, well, I wanted to include, but for you know publishing constraints, page number, that sort of thing, I was unable to do that. So maybe in the next revision, I'll include those that <laughs> didn't make this round. Yeah, the B roll. So I mean, do you get do you get angry letters from people that say, "How come you didn't include this trail or that trail?" No, man. I think I think a lot of the mountain bikers that are out there just appreciate a good ride, and they're not particularly abrasive when it comes to, you know, what I did or didn't include. If anything, I'm looked at as an outer of some of the trails that were once not, a, not as well known. So, you know, there might be a love-hate relationship with guidebook writers, but, you know, I, I try to respect the locals' perception of trails that belong to them. And at the same time, try to bring an awareness to riders that aren't of a particular area to respect the land that that belongs to all of us so it's a it's kind of a fine line to to ride but you know as a as a ski bum and steamboat i had my secret powder stashes too <laughs> that i did that i didn't want to uh let people in on so i i appreciate and respect the need for let's say privacy when it comes to riding yeah well, yeah, now you got me curious about what's in your secret stash and your file cabinet <laughs> that you have locked in right. your basement. <laughs> so I want to ask you, in your opinion, what makes Colorado such a great place to ride mountain bikes? Is it just the scenery and the terrain, or do you think there's something more going on there? You know, I, I, it's definitely more than just the scenery and the terrain, even though, you know, it's got that hands down in a lot of ways. The variety of scenery and the variety of terrain is awesome. But one of the things that I think makes it stand out is just the strong mountain biking community. I mean, the, the events that are sponsored throughout, you know, the towns, the, the variety of local advocacy groups and international advocacy groups, the various clubs, the, like I mentioned, the events, all of that really makes mountain biking in Colorado kind of like a standout recreation as much, if not more so, than skiing is or was. 
you can't beat the the plethora of craft breweries that are located near the trailheads. Yeah. So we provide a fair amount of beer that is tasty after a ride <laughs> and the accessibility to the trails. I mean, a, a rider can knock out a trail in 30 minutes uh, from his or her home, can combine a camping trip with a few rides or even do an extended bikepacking trip. So these are the things that, in my mind, really stand out as far as as far as Colorado mountain biking is concerned, beyond the scenery and the terrain. Yeah. Well, do you have certain areas in Colorado that are your favorites? So they're what's kind of your go-to spot if you had a three or four-day weekend and you could go anywhere in the state? Where would you go? Yeah, there really there's so many good uh, sections of Colorado. I, I do have my favorites. Uh, you cannot beat the South Central Colorado, and I'll lump uh, Crested Butte in on that. The trails down there are are phenomenal. I love the North Central region and the Steamboat area, and I'm really growing in appreciation of the Southwest region, Durango and Cortez. You got the high plateau desert riding there as well, uh, in addition to you know mountains that extend into the 13, 14,000 range. So those three areas of Colorado, I would say, would be my favorite if I had to go and spend some time away from the front range, which is yeah. the area in which, I, in which I ride. But even the front range lends um, a degree of technicality that isn't found in the more interior rides, the more Western rides that might have higher elevation and might be longer, uh, but they don't provide rocky, sandy technicality that the front range rides uh, provide. So, you know, the variety is endless, but if I had to choose, I'd love going to Crested Butte, Steamboat Springs, Durango, Cortez area. Well, yeah, sounds like you're pretty much saying anywhere that is west of Denver. Not You're not a big fan of the eastern part of Colorado, I guess, but everything else is fair game. Yeah, well, the riding, we I guess we ride for uh, altitude's sake and, and the rolling hillsides, and, and you don't get that on the eastern plains. But what you do get, and there's a, there's a ride in the book, Picket Wire Canyonlands, you do get nice descents into some canyonlands off of the prairie, off of the grasslands. And in this particular ride, uh, the longest set of pre-Cambrian dinosaur tracks uh, have been recorded. So you can go down to the river and literally see imprints of these three or four various dinosaur tracks, which is pretty cool in and of itself. And that, you know, in my mind, that's what distinguishes, I think, this book from maybe some of the other books. You're not just getting the least they need to know, the least a mountain biker needs to know. You're not just getting the data. You're getting a narrative. You're getting the story around a trail. And that's kind of why I find that my books are somewhat unique. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that to me is definitely surprising that there would be good riding on the Eastern side of the state. So were there other surprises that you found when you were researching and writing this book? You know, the, the earlier question about how much time the thing would involve, that was the biggest surprise, but really the, the joy of this newest revision and just writing these in general is a kind of affirmation that I, that I found over and over again. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of this concept of, realizing the benefits of finding one's place in one's place, knowing where you live and having a connection to where you live in whatever endeavor that might be, whether that's through mountain biking or some other endeavor. But that connection of place to place is was an affirmation. So it wasn't so much a surprise, but it was a, a healthy reawakening of, of why I like getting out in Colorado. Yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned early on that 
you know, it took much longer than you anticipated to write that first edition. How did it go for this latest edition? How, how long did it take you from when you, you know, decided you were going to update the book to when it was actually, you know, at the publisher? Well, this this time around, it, it didn't take, what was it, three years. It took only two years. Uh, oh, wow. But, you know, I'm a teacher as well, full time. I'm a family man. Uh, I, I negotiate my family calendar along with my calendar. So <laughs> right. back in the day, it, it was just me and I would sit behind a windshield and drive for hours and then ride and then drive some more and ride. And that was basically the routine. But, you know, life has gotten a little bit more dynamic as I got older. So it did take me a couple of years because I couldn't dedicate, you know, 24-7, 365 to it. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about the process for creating a guidebook. And I imagine this has changed over the years, but walk us through sort of how that goes from, you know, researching a trail beforehand to actually going out and visiting and how you document it, the whole thing. I'm really curious about uh, sort of what your workflow is like. Right. You know, once you get, once I got the green light uh, after submitting my proposal and my ideas and they offered me a contract, then, you know, it it started, you know, this was before digital film uh, or digital cameras. So I was lugging pounds of camera gear. (laughs) You're stocking up on 35 millimeter film, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. And trying to keep all that straight and organized. So I would have my camera in my backpack and uh, I would tape a, um, a dictaphone to my backpack and I would literally record the ride, things that I observed, things that I noticed. Uh, so there would be sort of like a from the seat kind of perspective in, in the narrative. Uh, and then I'd go home after a ride and transcribe my notes get the data down, and then do follow-up research to see what other elements I could include to, to color the ride. So that was, your, that was the basic routine. By the time you know the 2000s rolled around and the, this last revision, digital technology was alive and well, so it made my photo- photography a lot easier. I was recording GPS coordinates, so all of my trails are populated with GPS coordinates, and I could you know, verify the photos that I took and the position that I took. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the applications for the map making, the various map applications, some free, some free, some not, were a lot more uh, friendly and accurate. When I did this originally, I was going to the USGS survey, taking out sections and sections of maps, photocopying them, pasting or taping them together and drafting my route with a, a pencil, a colored marker, and, and, and then that would get digitized by the publishers. Now all that stuff I do on my end digitally. Wow, that's really cool. So would you, could you usually do this in one ride? I mean, could you drive out to, you know, Trail 401 and, you know, have your dictaphone going and you do one ride of the trail and you get everything you need? Or did you ever find yourself sort of back in the office and saying, oh, shoot, you know, I didn't get everything that I needed. I need to go back and do it again. Always. Yeah, that happened. That That's happened <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to, to finish a trail or the chapter, let's call it, it was a day's work in the saddle and then at least three to four days behind a computer. So you're, you're talking about a four to five day commitment for each ride at least. And then of course, you know, you, you screw up when you're out on the trail, you get lost, you forget things, you, you, you otherwise make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. So that happened on, 
I would say several occasions, not many, but several occasions. And I'd have to take the time and go back and do it again. And for me, it was, it was a matter of integrity. Uh, I, I could have tried to fudge it, but if I'm putting my name on something, if I'm putting my name on work, I'm going to make it as accurate and as, uh, clear as possible. So yeah, I had to go back and, and redo a few things. I did a, uh, a the snowmass loop, which is a larger, longer loop uh, in Aspen, and I got lost on the trail. So I and this is a thirty mile loop, relatively uh, challenging physically and technically. But you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't put that forth as legitimate work. So I had to go back and do it all over, and that happened several times. Wow. How much did you rely on local advice for some of these trails? I mean, from the discovery to the documentation and everything, how important is that to talk to somebody local who, you know, really knows the area, knows the trails? Almost every every ride, I tried to contact somebody that was local or someone who I knew had ridden it before or spent some time down there. Uh, so, you know, to get the beta on the area and the trail, I would ask a bike shop or someone that I met at the trailhead. Oftentimes I would scout the trailhead beforehand and just interview people as they were coming off the trail and just kind of getting a, the lay of the land and a little beta on, on that. So I would definitely talk to strangers and meet a lot of strangers on the trail to see what they had to say. Yeah. And like, likewise on the trail, like I'd run into some, uh, I ran into someone in Denver who was retired and he had just come back from an extended trip in the Southwest. And he was like, Hey, these are the trails that you might want to look up and check into. So just a lot of word of mouth, you know? Yeah, that's cool. So how is the process much different for updating the book? I mean, you're on the third edition now, so this would be the second time that you've updated the original work. Right. Uh, do you actually go out and re-ride the trails again? Or with some of them, are you able to, I don't know, kind of phone it in? When, when I see that a change has been made, either in, in a name or in a route or anything of that sort, I will re-ride all the rides that have previously been published. If a ride is relatively stable and it hasn't changed, then I don't go and re-ride it. I'll, I'll get the uh, coordinates, the GPS coordinates for it. Mm-hmm. On occasion, I'll re-ride it just to get new photos, updated photos. But for this last iteration, um, it's a significant percentage that is completely new. So with revisions, you're generally riding new trails. Those that are stable, you just fact check and make sure that everything is good to go. And if it isn't, then you do rewrite them. So percentage wise, it's hard. It's hard to say. I just know from this last uh, this last round, it's significantly changed from even the second edition. Yeah. How many miles would you say you rode on your mountain bike officially in you know support of this revision? Oh, thousands. And, and these are these are mount, these are mountain mountain miles. So, you know, the, the miles that you log getting lost and backtracking and redoing on top of the, the actual miles that are, that are of the trail, that adds up. So, you know, I would say at least a thousand miles easy. Yeah. Wow. Well, and it seems like too, I mean, this is not just an academic exercise. I mean, this is, like you said, you're riding thousands of miles and driving all over the place and riding trails with the potential to get lost and challenging trails. I mean, do you... Did you need to like work up to this and, you know, sort of get in shape before tackling this project or do you, you stay pretty fit generally? 
You know, I generally stay active, but you know, a, a friend of mine who would travel across, uh, bike across country a couple of times, has biked across country a couple of times, mentioned to me, you get in shape while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I took his, I took his advice. And while I generally am active, really the doing is what gets you in shape. Uh, so I didn't really train or prepare in any regard. I just, I just like riding my bicycle and I like seeing cool places and that keeps the legs moving. Yeah, that's great advice. So you know, these appear to be challenging times for the mountain bike guidebook business, you know, with all the digital options that are available. So why choose this format, you know, the printed format today over other, you know, more digital, you know, internet friendly formats? Yeah, that that is a great question. And, um, you know, overall, I think Overall, sales of print books have been relatively stable, particularly guidebooks. In recent years, in 2016, with the with the the boost in the national parks interest, fueled a, a kind of strong uh, book sales. But but no no question, you know, this sort of format sees its competition in the way of uh, free and online content. I like books. And I like, I like old school books. And that's kind of why I appreciate writing it in, in this format. You know, my, my books are kind of born out of, they're framed in a memory or memories that I have sitting around a campfire with some friends, you know, or, or hanging around a campfire, looking at local guidebooks about history, geology, just kind of, kind of informing ourselves about the adventure we're going to do the next morning. Yeah. So it was with that vision that I wanted to kind of pursue and, and maintain the, the, the book format whereby someone can take his or her time and read more than just the facts. And I, and I also think that I, I also think that books and paper travel a little easier than uh, some of the, some of the other, technological devices that you can use, you know, you can, you can fold a piece of paper or you can bend a piece of paper and tear and repair a piece of paper. Yeah. You can write on it. You can write on it. You have to be a little bit more sensitive and, uh, careful with technology Yeah, given the climate in which we ride in, in the mountains, you know, which is very unpredictable. So yeah, you know, it's, it is a challenge and book sales have, have, in, as far as guidebook sales for mountain biking have, been are competing with this online content and you know another another consideration is people are moving through retail spaces less and less so the opportunity for someone to perhaps grab a guidebook off a shelf isn't what it used to be at the end of the day however i think book sales are still stable and holding firm and provide uh something that the online uh, landscape doesn't. Yeah, that's well said. You know, I've I've got a pretty good collection of mountain bike guidebooks myself. You know, anytime I travel somewhere or, you know, I'm in a store and I see a book about a place that, you know, I've never been or looks interesting, I'll pick it up. And, you know, like, like I said, over the years, I've built up this huge collection of these guidebooks. And so I'm wondering, you know, you kind of hinted at it, but how do you see people using the book? You know, some of the books that I pick up are, you know, sort of larger format where it seems like the focus is on, like you said, sitting around a campfire or maybe, you know, 
cracking it open at home before you go out on an adventure and sort of using it to plan, whereas others are sort of more compact and they're, they seem to be designed to bring with you on the trail. And, you know, I've got, I've got many of those that are all wrinkled and sweat soaked and everything, but, but yeah, how do you see that? Do you see people taking that information with them or, or do you see it as more of like a planning tool? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I do see it as as both. Primarily, you know, it's it's a planning tool. If you are vacationing in a certain area and mountain biking appeals to you, or you'd like to check out some of the trails, then you would read up on that area and the trails that are that are provided and and plan your trip that way. Short of that, however, you know, there are opportunities to photocopy sections of the of the book and just take what you need on the trail, the map, the mileage, the mile by mile directional cues, uh, whatever you feel is necessary for your your ride. And the book does come in, in a digital format too. You can ultimately download it on your phone or some other device if you if you prefer that route. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that always, I guess, frustrated me and made me a little sad about books was the the photos being in black and white. Yeah, and I'm sure it's a you know publishing constraint, and it's like the book would cost fifty dollars if it was all in color. But yeah, do you, are you ever bummed that people don't get to see your photos and sort of all of their glory? Well, actually, a lot of the uh, publishing companies are going to photo uh, colors these days. So the last revision to my Front Range book, those photos are all in color. And and this latest revision to my to the Colorado book, they're all in color. So, yeah, we, we will be able to see Colorado in all its colorful glory. Yeah, well, that's great. It's a great update. So in your mind too, I mean, are there any specific advantages paper has over digital? Right. No, I think, you know, again, it, it, it works for some and, and maybe a younger audience will be inclined toward a, a digital landscape. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm also a teacher and I, and I see that students, if they're going to read, generally prefer hard copy books than, than digital copy books. So I, I still see a place in the marketplace and on the bookshelf for traditional books. I got to ask you, do you have any plans to move beyond Colorado in terms of documenting other places in the form of a guidebook? You know, no immediate plans. There, there are opportunities that spring up to do other books and other recreations. I'm an avid backcountry skier as well. But at this moment, I'm going to, I'm going to grow some roots a little bit and, and stick around the house a little bit and maybe do some lawn work. <laughs> nice. I mean, are there any other states though that you would, you would love to visit, you know, and maybe in another lifetime, a place that you would uh, be as stoked to explore as, as you have been with Colorado? Oh, absolutely. I would love to uh, explore more of the trails throughout Utah. I do a fair amount of uh, riding in the Moab area, but other places in, in Utah would be great to, to check out. I'd love to head up into the Vancouver area and ride some of the trails up in Canada and hit up some of the, some of the different countries that provide great riding. I'd love to hit up Europe. Parts of Central America offer great riding. So it's just, it's just a matter of getting there. Yeah. Well, it seems like Central America too. I mean, from the limited information I've been able to find, it seems like 
you know, you'd almost be going back to where you were in the 2000s where, you know, it's really hard to come across the information. It's all about connecting with local people and, you know, kind of exploring around. I mean, it kind of sounds exciting to me. Absolutely. And I think that I think that's what it might among other things, it, it has that to offer, a kind of return to a more, let's see, a, a just a return to a more sort of like to the beginnings of what mountain biking was earlier in, in its history here. Yeah, that's a really cool way to put it. Like you said, mountain biking has changed so much just since you published the first edition of your book. And to think about how early this is in other places, there are a lot of really wild places on this planet that mountain bikes are just starting to explore. That's a cool thing to look forward to. The difference is you may be in a different country, not being able to speak the language and uh, staring down the uh, hungry eyes of a leopard of some kind. Right. Well, great. This has been a lot of fun talking with you today, Stephen. Uh, I know I've definitely learned a lot. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. And thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure talking with you as well. The updated third edition of Stephen's book, Mountain Biking Colorado, an atlas of Colorado's greatest off-road bicycle rides, was just published on June 1st and is available on Amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, be sure to rate us in your podcast app. That's all we have for this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.